Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. So I hold myself in contempt if you try to pull me up here to court with that attorney. the questions here, carjacker Willie. Objection! I'm going to allow it. It characterizes the defendant as a carjacker. You didn't kill Thompson, but you did, Mr. Wells. Yes! Yes, I killed Ben Thompson! I killed him! Welcome to Opening Arguments, the podcast that pairs an inquisitive interviewer with a real-life lawyer. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices of P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hello, and welcome to Opening Arguments. This is episode 283. I'm your host, Thomas Smith. That over there is Andrew Torres. How are you doing, Andrew? I am fantastic, Thomas. How are you? I'm so excited because we got special guest Robert Mueller. <laughs> Bob Mueller, are you on? You? Oh, oh no. we're having okay. a little problems yeah, with his connection. But no. he did speak, so we'll just use the four things he said to maybe to maybe uh, <laughs> talk about some issues around the show. Oh, I'm excited. I- we got so much to talk about. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just excited to get going. All right. Well, a little uh, pre-show announcements. Well, a couple things. Number one, uh, and and I know you're uh, you're you're too modest to do this, but I really want to give a plug for SIO one ninety four that just came out yesterday, uh, in which you and Hall of Fame patron, friend of our show, friend in real life, Eli Bosnick, mm-hmm. uh, discuss milkshaking. Um, a couple of, a couple of folks have asked us, uh, you know, to to sort of talk about the legal aspects of that and. I think you and Eli just handled that absolutely 100% perfectly. So uh, that I, and, and I don't change my mind is not the right word, right? Because mm-hmm. I am in total agreement. But I, I think we had a throwaway line on Tuesday's show in which uh, I said, you know, you and you and I might uh, disagree on on milkshaking and 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 it just. It's it it couldn't be more dead on. I refer all questions to serious inquiries <laughs> only. Episode one ninety four. I'll be the Sarah Huckabee Sanders for you, uh, Andrew Torres, and milkshaking. <laughs> except more, uh, not a liar. How about that? Oh well, well I appreciate that. Go ahead and uh, type in serious inquiries only to, to wherever what pod, find podcast stores near you and uh, check that one out. Yeah, I I, th- I think we uh, I think we cracked it on milkshaking. I really think that was. Uh, I'm glad Eli. And I kind of came to the same conclusion. It sounds like you did too. So, I mean, if us three agree on it, then everybody should check it out. I and mean, come on, yeah, 
Yeah. Pre-show number two, uh, as always happens, as we are recording this, Judge Amy Berman Jackson is holding a hearing and entertaining oral arguments in the Roger Stone case. Um, there are two sort of principal arguments that are pending. The press is really focused on the first set, which are the arguments that uh, Robert Mueller did not have legal authority to begin the investigation, as we've talked about on this show at great length. Search the uh, archives for Andrew Miller, uh, who, who, by the way, uh, dropped his appeal uh, yesterday. Those arguments are nonsense, right? And so it, it, it doesn't matter. They're not going to win. I, I, I don't really know why uh, they're sort of commanding press attention. Uh, but, but the interesting thing that might come out of it are the requests by Stone's lawyers to have access to the unredacted Mueller report. And um, from everything that I can tell in, you know, sort of (laughs) attempting in the background to uh, to follow the oral arguments today while uh, while while prepping for the show, um, Judge Jackson might be receptive to that. She might order an in-camera inspection. I think Judge Jackson would love to see an entire unredacted copy of the Mueller report. So to me, that will be, you know, sort of the real takeaway. Um, if, if there's a bombshell, you know, maybe we'll record a bonus episode. Um, if, mm. if there's just corroborating news, you know, follow our, our Twitter feed. That's at Open Args. Or if you're on Facebook, head on over to uh, Yodel Mountain, the uh, OA Facebook community. Both of those links are in the show notes. So if you want to track that, um, that's, that's how to, uh, to stay abreast of the uh, Judge Jackson, Roger Stone developments. Awesome. I'm seeing another pre-show announcement. What well, new record I, probably tied for the record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. I am really really excited about this one. Ooh. Um in episode 273, that's a month ago. It's actually 5 weeks ago right now. We broke down the lawsuit against oh. Sears. It's right? been There's five the lawsuit weeks? Being- Oh wow. When you have a yeah. baby, time is a weird thing. <laughs> April 23rd. Um, it is the lawsuit by Sears against Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and uh, former Sears CEO Eddie Lampert. And the allegations are that uh, Lampert and Mnuchin knew that Sears was bankrupt. And uh, nevertheless, they stripped the company of its assets, looted all the valuable stuff uh, in order to distribute those funds to the shareholders, of which they were the by far majority beneficial owners, and uh, thus leave the company in miserable shape uh, heading into bankruptcy, uh, then thereby depriving the creditors of assets that could satisfy their outstanding obligations. I was really, really proud of of that episode. It has been picked up by uh, friends of the show, Liz Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who have issued a letter to Mnuchin demanding that he answer questions related to Sears. There is a really, really intriguing development uh, just breaking right now that nobody has picked up on yet. Uh Um, It involves a brand new mystery villain. And this is somebody who is so obscure. He does not, as of this recording, have Have a Wikipedia Wikipedia page. (laughs) 
<laughs> he does not have a publicly available photo on the internet. Wow. Um, and it's me. He it's me, soon... everybody. It's me. <laughs> well, uh, th- those first two, are, well, no, you do have publicly available photos on the internet. <laughs> but uh, even if you satisfied those two requirements, you would not satisfy the third, which is he's about to be handed control of $115 billion uh. in government-managed private assets. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, he is intricately connected with all of the Sears nonsense. We're going to do that a huge oh, deep dive. Super you're right. excited it's about not it on me. Tuesday. I only have like thirty billion or something. It's not, yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. This is this is think of this as the mirror universe. G. Zachary Terwilliger. Okay, <laughs> oh. he's got he's he's got the thin little goatee. This is Z. Zachary No, T. Zachary Terwilliger. So I would love it if our listeners were able to figure out uh, who the mystery villain is uh, before Tuesday's show. But um, but I really I really am excited about it. Uh, I want to I want to tease that. So if you haven't listened to 273, you know, if you're if you're a Friday show guy or gal, uh, go back, listen to 273 and uh, and stay tuned for uh, for our upcoming Tuesday episode 284, because it's going to be a deep dive. It's going to have all that kind of classic OA goodness. But it is couldn't be more relevant and i think we are the first to sort of talk about all of this interaction so um so i'm excited about it all right wow what a what a teaser time to uh to move on to the current agenda but i'm excited for tuesday and yet another pre-show announcement before we get going uh we are going to be doing the patreon q a the live q a this is so exciting andrew i i I can't believe it we are going to be together at last Together at last, oh, we're going to be in wait. San Francisco hanging out with the uh, Puzzle and a Thunderstorm friends, and we just realized we can bust out this patron live Q&A on Saturday. A little bit of a short notice for you there, but it's going to be great. Saturday, we're going to do it at 5 p.m. Pacific time. That will That's 8 p.m. Eastern time, of course, and we will be together. We'll be live. I can't wait. Yeah, might even have special guests that uh, pop in in the background, so... Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it, but but I'm most looking forward to you and I being together, Thomas. It's Definitely, awesome. uh, I think it'll be hard to not have special guests popping in the background. <laughs> and uh, but of course, you can already go to Patreon.com and uh, find the question thread, the Q and A thread. You can either pose questions or you can just go vote on the ones that you want to hear. We tend to use the uh, the favorites, the stars, whatever the button is, as a gauge to see you know who's interested in what question because. You know, Andrew, it's impossible to get through all of them, <laughs> but I'm so excited. <laughs> so make sure set your watches, everybody, set your, the, your little calculator watches or your uh, phone, whichever, uh, for Saturday. That's this Saturday, June 1st at 5 p.m. Pacific. All right, let's go to our first segment. Andrew was things. I'm asking you if you know the difference between right and wrong. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I was indeed things. Yes. So first, I was wrong in our last episode on <laughs> pronouncing the medical name of the Plan B uh, birth control. Um, it yeah, is spelled, but were you though? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is spelled L E V O N O R G E S T R E L, and 
people are telling me that lev is pronounced leave that makes no sense that's got to be lev uh mm. but uh but folks in the oa facebook community uh heather mcmillan some others have said no no it's definitely levo something well, um, i guess some people say lever instead of lever yeah. right yeah, maybe, but I blame 13th century Saxony for saddling us with this unpronounceable. No, language. I bl- I blame big pharma or, or any pharma, moderate size. Yeah, pharma. well, there I you mean, go, the unholy the, alliance. As though being wrong about a pronunciation of a drug is anything at all. Like it's it's a, a toss up on all those. I know there's no way you could pronounce most of them. <laughs> um, what I was right about and wish I had been wrong about is that. Um, what is coming down the pike in the next couple of weeks are disastrous rulings of the worst case scenario from the Supreme Court in its political gerrymandering cases. Um, we we know this. We got a heads up because uh, just this week, the Supreme Court issued four per curiam orders. Those uh, are four per curiam orders. Those orders were at the request of Republican officials in Ohio and Michigan that asked the Supreme Court to stay intermediate court op- uh, 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 opinions on political gerrymandering pending future action by the Supreme Court. Right. So in other words, these are Republican gerrymandered districts in Ohio and in Michigan in which Courts have lower courts have argued, hey, look, this is obviously blatant partisan gerrymandering. You've got to redraw these districts. And um, the uh, the state officials petitioned the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court granted four orders. Um, These are one sentence orders. I'm going to link them in the show notes uh, that uh, that stay the judgment pending the timely filing and disposition of an appeal in this court or further order of this court. End of quote. The only reason to do that is because in the Wisconsin and Maryland gerrymandering cases, the Supreme Court is about to issue uh, a 5-4 ruling that political gerrymandering is just fine, thank you very much, and you don't get relief in the courts. Um, this this is going to be uh, a, a landmark, terrible decision, and, um, you know, we've We've been warning you about that ever since the composition of the court changed, and uh, and it's coming. And was so, there any way to prevent the composition of the court having changed that you could think? No, of? No, no. I mean, you know that that not not that not that I could think of. Mm. I mean, well, uh, maybe you know, not uh, casting seventy thousand protest votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh. in twenty sixteen. Uh, but um, but you know, I'm sure it's all part of the long con yeah, for the left to to take over by granting the right a thirty year monopoly on the judiciary. Yeah. And now, by the way entrenching uh, the ability to politically gerrymander districts to further keep republicans in power but you know what Um, 50 years from now in gilead there's going to be an awesome bernie sanders type perfect candidate that we can vote for i think yeah but he will he will have you know once said something and uh (laughs) well i think it'll just be immediately executed if i if the handmaid's tale is is accurate i think that's how <laughs> that's it true that's true so um look it's bad it's coming the if you have seen reports that are reading the the orders that way um those are correct readings of those reports um that there's there is you could make an argument 
that um, you know that the court might stay those judgments anyway, uh, even if they were intending to rule. Um, you know, in in some because because remember we talked about hoping that. Uh, the way in which this partisan Supreme Court would come down would be to um, to have a result that is politically good for Republicans, but would set judicial precedent that would be beneficial to, to all of us, to, to voters in the long run, right? And that would be finding some narrow reason to reject the Wisconsin gerrymandering, which favors Republican, but granting relief in the Maryland gerrymandering case, which favors Democrats. Mm. And by the way, you know, as, as we've been totally clear on this, Maryland's congressional districts are ridiculously gerrymandered, right? It, 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 and that case ought to be uh, that, you know, relief ought to be granted in that case, in my view. And there was kind of a narrow window of maybe they're so partisan that they want. And this is a pretty strong signal that that the court is going to say. That's why the 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 language or further order of this court uh, is is in there, uh, because this is very, very uh, this language is is meant to signify that the court is about to rule that political gerrymandering does not give rise to a cause of action. That's that's what I think is coming. And uh, boy, I would love to be wrong on that, even if it gives Republicans an additional congressional seat in 2020. Right. It, it It's the, the 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 principle here saying we can go to the courts to validate the the principle of one person one vote that we can actually have a a a check and a balance uh, to protect the uh, the integrity of of the democratic process uh, would be worth it uh, we're not going to get that so mm. uh, so there you go great nice depressing way to start the show but uh, uh, there hey, you uh, to depress you further I've got uh, maybe another. Andrew was was right or wrong to to keep in mind here, and and maybe we'll talk more about it in the C segment. But uh, Andrew, how's that bar impeachment going? Going, going well. Going. I, I actually again, I think that uh, we're going to talk about that in the C segment. Okay. But well, I think that the tease, uh, tease that uh, Thomas was Thomas yeah. right or was Andrew right on that one? I we'll think see. I was right on that. Okay. So, oh, uh, oh well, maybe we'll get a a mini uh, Optimus Prime v Negatron just just uh, in the C maybe. segment. We'll tease a little teaser there. Okay. All right. Well, that's depressing on on all fronts there, except for your drug pronunciation. That's neutral. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever tried a jury trial i have not civil no every lawyer is tempted criminal no bench no not only to eat forbidden fruit but to become the snake state or federal court i have not why am i persecuted? so let's move on to more depressing stuff let's see oh yeah though this is horrifying yeah so. yeah i heard i saw some headlines about a horrifying concurrence uh, by Thomas in the Planned Parenthood case. Why don't you tell us, break down for us just how horrifying this may or may not be? Uh, it is as bad as you've read and then some. So oh, this case is Box versus Planned Parenthood, and it involved a challenge to two Indiana laws uh, that were signed by then Governor, now Vice President Mike Pence. The, the first provision required that Fetal remains are, quote, 
Nothing less than the remains of a partially gestated fetus and should be treated with the same dignity, end of quote, and therefore required that uh, if a woman had an abortion, that funereal arrangements be made for the fetal remains. Um, that's, yeah, well, I'll, I will let that law speak for itself. Uh, the second law and th- these are all th- these are I, I i shouldn't say they're two separate laws they're two provisions of the same law um the second provision w- banned uh abortion in the state of indiana uh if the abortion was undertaken based on the disability such as down syndrome sex or race of the fetus um i, I so those are the two laws that were challenged the district court uh, and, and again, this follows the exact same pattern that we've talked about in all of the abortion cases. The district court had no problem in joining the law from going into effect, blocking both of those provisions. The Seventh Circuit affirmed the district court's findings and said, I, look, this is blatantly unconstitutional. And then it went up to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court did was issued a two page opinion, very, very short, a paragraph on each of the provisions. The first paragraph is on the fetal remains part, which the Supreme Court affirmed. Uh, by the way, this these are this is a per curiam opinion. That means that it is unsigned. We don't know who wrote the majority opinion. We've we've talked about per curiam opinions uh, on the show a lot. Um, so, part one was a very very narrow holding, and here's what the Supreme Court says: in challenging this provision, respondents, right, that is Planned Parenthood have never argued that Indiana's law imposes an undue burden on a woman's right to obtain an abortion. The case, as litigated, therefore does not implicate our cases applying the undue burden test to abortion regulations. Other courts have analyzed challenges similar to disposition laws, that's what they call this, under the undue burden standard, uh, and then it and then it cites to Planned Parenthood of Indiana and Kentucky versus uh, Indiana State Department of Health, which is, the, uh, which is a separate uh, district court opinion. So what does that mean? It means that Planned Parenthood elected not to argue that the fetal remains law was a restriction on the right to an abortion. As Ruth Bader Ginsburg points out in her dissent, that's kind of crazy, right? Uh, Of course, right? The law, because the law does not require that a a pregnant individual dispose of fetal remains in the case of a miscarriage, right? It only applies to women who abort fetuses. It only applies to uh, pregnant individuals who abort fetuses. So how you could argue, right? It just, it, it doesn't make logical sense to say this doesn't implicate the right to an abortion. Of course, it's a restriction on abortion in the same way that all of the post-Casey efforts to restrict abortion are restrictions on abortion, right? Like yeah. requiring that that uh, pregnant individuals undergo medically unnecessary ultrasounds, requiring that uh, pregnant individuals receive certain misleading literature from the state, right? They're all efforts to burden, and the question is, is the burden undue? It was not argued that way before before this court, and the only reason I can think of for not arguing it that way is that uh, Planned Parenthood's counsel made the strategic decision that they did not want this activist Supreme Court to 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 take on to tackle the question directly: Are fetal 
burial, fetal disposal, whatever you want to call the, these, are these bills constitutional despite the fact that they restrict abortion rights, right? They didn't want to set that precedent. That's the only reason I can think of for doing that. So um, stripped of that characterization, then the only question is a rational basis, right? If it doesn't implicate a fundamental right, then the only question that the Supreme Court needs to deal with is uh, what we call a deferential test, right? Rational basis review. There must be a legitimate government interest and the law must be rationally related to that legitimate government interest. Um, the Supreme Court in a 1983 decision said the state has, quote, a legitimate interest in proper disposal of fetal remains, end of quote. Um, so this was not a hard decision uh, on on the merits once the case was was presented in that fashion. Um, so uh, congratulations, women who get an abortion in Indiana will have to pay money to dispose of the fetus after an abortion. Um, that is direct. I mean, literally the only purpose of, for that is to uh, impose additional costs on women, uh, on pregnant individuals seeking abortions in Indiana. So, Yay. Uh, so that's bad. so ridiculous. Yep. Part two in, in the uh, discrimination provision, the Supreme Court, again, two sentences. Our opinion expresses no view on the merits of the second question presented, i.e. whether Indiana may prohibit the knowing provision of sex, race and disability selective abortions by abortion providers. Only the Seventh Circuit has thus far addressed this kind of law. We therefore follow our ordinary practice of denying petitions insofar as they raise legal issues that have not been considered by additional courts of appeals. So we've talked about that before, right? Um, the Supreme Court generally grants cert only when there is a conflict among the circuits and there's there's no conflict here. Uh, the only circuit to rule on this kind of law is the Seventh Circuit, which has struck it down. And so the Supreme Court says, yeah, so therefore we're going to let that stand. Um, so that provision is not enforceable in the Indiana law. Hmm. Um, and that is what led to the those two paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to a 20-page concurrence by Clarence Thomas. Um, I have I already mentioned briefly the, uh, the Ginsburg dissent, which I, I think is correct. The Thomas concurrence runs to 20 pages. Um, I kind of wish Antonin Scalia were still alive, because no, bite your I tongue, would love... Sir, that is the worst. <laughs> Andrew was wrong segment on that. No, I, Antonin Scalia is rolling over in his grave reading this Thomas uh, uh, concurrence. It is it is 20 pages long, other than for summary propositions of law in the first paragraph and the last paragraph, and one reference to Buck versus Bell, which we're going to talk about. Uh, it contains no legal citations. It, it contains a purported reading of history that comes straight out of David Barton and the Christian Dominionists. It contains multiple references to international law and international trends. In short, it is everything that Antonin Scalia spent 20 years on the Supreme Court making fun of. It just, you know, is happens to be in furtherance of, of 
right-wing political causes now. So, you know, I, either Scalia would denounce this or he would be engaged in mental contortions. And either way, I'd kind of like to see that. It would be it would be interesting. And it's not like Scalia is a worse Supreme Court justice than Neil Gorsuch. So, That's a good um, point. I'd rather, now, yeah. now that I think about it, I'd rather still have Scalia just because he's cl- he would be closer to dying. So Yeah, there you yeah. go. So, uh, so what does this concurrence do? Um, this concurrence uses the stupidest right-wing rhetoric. And, and as evidence, that, right, this is not just my opinion, right? Go to page 10 of the concurrence. And in the, I suppose I should back up. It is a 20-page concurrence devoted to the thesis that Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, was a eugenicist and racist. Okay, I'm going to talk a tiny bit about that because that that is a longstanding uh, canard of the right. Um, and there's is, some truth to it, right? I mean, she. Yeah, no, she no. Was look, pretty... it is it is based in it, it, it. What what makes these kinds of arguments durable, right? I mean, lots of the David Barton stuff when he just invents quotes out of thin air, which by the way he's done on this topic, uh, attributing to Margaret Sanger things that that she hasn't said. You know, when when you just invent stuff out of out of thin air, it's relatively easy to say, okay, well this is just made up. There's no show me the original document. Um, when there is a grain of truth to the to the underlying argument, uh, that that's what makes these kinds of, of misleading statements so pernicious. Mm. Um, so I, I'm going to I'm going to speak a little bit to the facts. Uh, but but before we even get there, the entire argument is a giant non sequitur. Right. Yeah. It, it, Margaret Sanger could be the worst human being alive. Oh, yeah. uh, dead. I've done some intense national treasure type research and I uncovered that uh, the people who started the United States uh, actually owned human beings as slaves. So uh, I've now yeah, disproven right, the right. United I, States. I, it, it, look, and, and, and again, I want to be on record here. If, say, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had filed a blistering dissent uh, in D.C. versus Heller in which she went through the racist origins of the National Rifle Association. Uh, I'm not saying that there are. I'm, I'm, this is a hypothetical. I mean, it's a, and, we can you know, guess that there probably are, but sure, yeah. I, it, I, my, I, I think my understanding, this is, this is from a... Um, Oh gosh, uh, not behind the bastards, but um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember one of one of the the pod. It could have been a Pod Save America. I don't know, but the, my understanding is that there was actually a political right wing takeover of the NRA in the 1970s, uh. and before that, it really was an organization for hunters and fishermen. Gotcha. I don't know, and I don't care. Right? Like, yeah. it, it 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 absolutely has no bearing whatsoever and if and if if the nra had you know history in the confederacy or right like it could have the worst stupidest most awful origins and that would not be at all relevant to the jurisprudence of a gun ban right and similarly right clarence thomas could be 100 percent correct and 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 again look we've we've talked about clarence thomas as being you know tv ugly right uh, uh, in terms of his uh, intellectual qualifications for being on the supreme court um clarence thomas could could go hang out at a bar and be the smartest person in the bar right like i mean he's he's not an idiot on the level of you know the ordinary people you meet on the street idiot right like he's he's probably not intellectually up to the task of being on the supreme court as multiply evidenced by all of the shows that we've done on right um 
but 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 he's not a moron. He he recognizes that he is engaged in political advocacy here. And and again, I just want to read part two a starting at, on page ten. Quote. Like many elites of her day, Sanger accepted that the eugenics was, quote, the most adequate and thorough avenue to the solution of racial, political and social problems, end of quote. Um, the, uh, it, uh, there is not an irony detector strong enough for a sitting justice of the United States Supreme Court to call Margaret Sanger an elite. I, I, are you not like you're one of nine people with a job like yeah. that's. That's crazy, and that is that is lifted out of right wing talking points, right? Because you know we're in an era of Trump, and you know before that, in which we sneer down our nose at uh, at you know the elites that try and tell you I, that that is high grade nonsense. Okay, it then because sex and race selective abortions, statistically speaking, do not occur in this country. Uh, we then move to page 16 and 17, in which Clarence Thomas bemoans uh, the fate of sex-selective abortions in, uh, in Asia, right? And mm. uh, the abortion rate in Iceland for children diagnosed with Down syndrome in utero approaches 100%. Um, why on earth the state of Indiana needs to pass a law to try and solve a problem that doesn't occur in Indiana but does occur in China? I don't know. And Clarence Thomas doesn't tell us. Um, But then after sort of justifying the purpose for this bill uh, by by virtue of reference to international law, which, again, I just want to point out that Antonin Scalia literally made a career out of mocking Supreme Court decisions that did this, uh, particularly on capital punishment. After that, we then get to the most offensive and egregious part of of this 20-page screed, which is eight decades after Sanger's Negro Project, abortion in the United States is marked by considerable racial disparity. And then goes through. Um, And this is the gravamen of the attack, and this is the part that is 100% false. Okay, Um, The idea is that Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist. Uh, Not true. She, She did express views that were sympathetic to eugenics at a time in which everybody expressed views that were sympathetic to eugenics. It's not something about which we should be proud. And and it is something, I, I, again, the word irony does, does not apply, but the only Supreme Court decision that is cited in the middle of this concurrence is Buck versus Bell, uh, which is the infamous decision upholding mandatory sterilization that 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 uh, concluded with a line three generations of imbeciles is enough um, that is very clearly a low point in our nation's history but it makes the opposite point that clarence thomas thinks that it makes right which is to say in the first 25 to 30 years of the 20th century the even the supreme court endorsed eugenics right mm. so finding out that Somebody in the early 1900s said uh, a couple of sentences that are uh, pro-eugenics is not surprising. Some of the most celebrated jurists in American history said those sorts of things, right? That does not make it correct. Um, I, I don't think we need, you know, to do an opening arguments on why eugenics is 
bad, you know, philosophically, legally, uh, you know, in every conceivable way, right? Like, we know that. Um, but but that is the historical context uh, at, at a time in which uh, eugenics was part of the public discussion, but not in but not with the racial connotation that that this pernicious lie mm. has attached to it. So I'm going to attach uh, in the show notes um, two separate articles. Um, one is uh, a published peer-reviewed journal article in, published by the, uh, the Journal of the uh, National Institutes of Health, um, which argues very convincingly uh, that Margaret Sanger was not a eugenicist and was not a racist. She indeed gave voice to eugenicist voices. Uh, but here, I'm going to read from a little bit of the abstract. The basic concept of the eugenics movements in the 20s and 30s was that a better breed of humans could be created if the fit had more children and the unfit had fewer. This concept influenced a broad spectrum of thought, but there was little consensus on the definitions of fit and unfit. In theory, the movement was not racist. Its message intended to cross race barriers for the overall advancement of mankind. Most eugenicists agreed that birth control would be a detriment to the to the human race and were opposed to it. Charges that Sanger's motives for promoting birth control were eugenic are not supported. In her, in her most important work, Pivot of Civilization, Sanger's dissent from eugenics was made clear. By examining extracts from her books, the author refutes the notion that Sanger was a eugenicist. Okay. By the way, Clarence Thomas selectively quotes from Pivot of Civilization, but he only quotes the parts that have been previously quoted by David Barton and the like. I would wager any amount of money that Clarence Thomas has not read Pivot of Civilization. Any amount of money. Now, <laughs> next, what about the notion, what about the Negro Project, right? The, quote, Negro Project was indeed a project undertaken by Margaret Sanger to provide birth control and later access to abortion uh, to low-income, predominantly uh, African-American communities. Um, I should point out the reason for this was Margaret Sanger opened her first birth control clinic in Brooklyn in 1916. That was the white area of Brooklyn in 1916. It predominantly served white immigrant women. In 1930, she was then approached by prominent African-American activists, including W.B. Du Bois, the Urban League, the Amsterdam News, which was New York's leading black newspaper, uh, and was asked by leaders in the African-American community to open a family planning clinic in Harlem. Uh, that clinic was then staffed by black doctors. Mm. Uh, but I'm guessing they all wanted to eugenics themselves, right? They were probably complicit in the plan. No. It, 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 I, I, yeah. Um, I, it, what, the second you scratch beneath the surface, uh, these, these arguments are revealed to be preposterous. And, and it is, I suppose it is conceivable that Clarence Thomas has read nothing but the cheerleading from the right that says Sanger is a eugenicist and a racist and has never and is so intellectually uncurious or requires to, you know, buttress his own opinions that he hasn't read anything to the contrary. But if you do five minutes of digging, type in, go to Google. Don't don't trust me. I mean, you know, I always say this on the show. 
type in Margaret Sanger Negro Project uh, into Google, do five minutes of okay, reading, and any fair reading, you will walk away and go, oh, okay, yeah, eugenicists didn't like birth control because eugenicists are top down right the government needs to direct who gets to breed and who doesn't and if individuals have access to birth controls then the individuals get to decide there's no central planning so access to birth control was uh, a a uh, was the exact opposite of the eugenics and access to to abortion right because that disaggregates it decentralizes the notion of uh of family planning and uh Everything that Margaret Sanger did in the 1920s and the 1930s uh, was with the assistance at the urging of uh, the African-American community, uh, because prior to that, there there was a sense that, uh, oh, this is great. You're helping out, you know, poor white women and immigrant white women, uh, but you're not helping the black community at all. And um, and so uh, the charge that she is a racist is is absolutely false um and it is uh, it is revolting to see uh, a sitting supreme court justice again he could be a hundred percent right and this would still be an unbelievably inappropriate concurrence to write um the fact that he's also dead wrong is just um well, it, it, it speaks for itself. Wow. Yeah, I think I've even maybe absorbed a little bit of misinformation on Sanger. I thought, you know, I, I, I had put it in the category of, you know, who really did have good political or racial or whatever views in 1910 through 1930. Like, I just assumed yeah. it was like kind of the racism everybody had. But it's possible that uh, that I, I was even a little off in, in my view. And again, just to emphasize None of that matters in the slightest when you're talking about this legal question, right? I mean, none of this matters. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. And again, I, I don't want to in, in, it, it, I want to I want to be very, very clear because you can hear that I'm I'm angry over the judicial outreach here, uh, a judicial overreach. Uh, you can hear that I'm angry over the grotesque lies and misinformation that that are contained in this concurrence i i i don't want to whitewash the fact that margaret sanger had objectionable political views Mm -hmm. right like that that that's true but not surprising and and but but the idea that her views were were racist eugenics is just it could not be more false Wow. So we, you've given us a lot to digest here. Um, could you once again, maybe just rephrase, like, what was the end result of, of this decision uh, in, in, in simplest terms, despite the fact yeah. that Thomas went off on a just a idiotic tangent for 20 pages? Right. Well, three, three things. Number one, uh, it upheld the Indiana fetal remains law. So, so they have to have like a, a Viking funeral. They got to do the, the boat. They, gotta they shoot have to an arrow. pay to have fetuses that are aborted, cremated or buried in Indiana. And <sighs> I, again, this is one of these I'll throw out here. Uh, and I feel pretty confident. You know, we try and, and steel man the other side. Uh, if, if you can come up with a justification for why a state would want you to have to pay to cremate or bury an aborted fetus, uh, but not a miscarried fetus, you know, send it 
openarguments at gmail.com or hit us up on social it's media. Gonna, I, I, yeah. I can't. I can't remotely come up with, with, a, with, a, with a reason. Plus, it changes uh, one, that. That, that riddle that was one of my first favorites as a kid. If a plane crashes in Indiana, where do you bury the fetuses? That was right. a totally different <laughs> right. answer now. Right. right. Number two, it leaves stand the Seventh Circuit's opinion regarding striking down the second provision of the law that prohibits abortion on the basis of sex, race or disability. Um, Look, the reason for that is states should not be in. I mean, because that 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 prohibits at, you know, any stage uh, of gestation and you know quite frankly uh, uh states ought not to be inquiring into uh, the motives of of pregnant individuals who who make a decision uh, regarding their body particularly at that stage of the pregnancy um and uh and 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 the problem that it is meant to to address is a problem that does not occur, and mm-hmm. I'm using that in quotes, right? To the extent that you think it is a problem, it's a problem that Clarence Thomas admits does not occur in the United States. It occurs in Iceland and China. Um, that's part two. Uh, point three from this is Clarence Thomas has openly gone, you know, full. Uh, he's he's not pretending. He's not hiding anymore. The end of his, uh, you know, maybe he wasn't hiding very well from the beginning. The end of his concurrence ends with these words, and we'll end the, the the segment with them because they are chilling. Having created the constitutional right to an abortion, this court is duty-bound to address its scope. In that regard, it is easy to understand why the district court and the Seventh Circuit looked to Casey to resolve a question it did not address. Where else could they turn? The Constitution itself is silent on abortion. Um, that That is Clarence Thomas saying, hey, look, uh, as soon as we get a chance, we have at least my vote and probably the votes of four other folks along with me to uh, to declare that that Roe v. Wade, quote, created the constitutional right to an abortion. Uh, it did no such thing as, you know, we have been through at great length on this show. Uh, but that's what's coming. And, you know, All we've right. done a lot on abortion. And this is um, this is this is. Well, that was. Uh, yeah, I think that was properly uh, sold as uh, depressing. I think a good way to. Way to signal that. That was every bit as uh, bad as I thought it might be. Okay, that's awful. Opening Arguments is brought to you by Hims, a wellness brand for men. You've heard us talking about Hims and how they are helping guys look their best. If you haven't yet, it is time to see what they're all about. Forhims.com is your one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, or sexual wellness products for men. So if you're worried about hair loss, for example, the best way to prevent more hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some hair. So why do people go to weird solutions or gas station supplements or do nothing when they can turn to medicine or science? Hims is helping guys be the best version of themselves with licensed physicians and FDA-approved products to help treat hair loss. These aren't snake oil pills. Like I said, these are prescription solutions backed by science. And Hims knows that there are some men's health conversations that are just easier online than in person. I, I totally agree with this. Sometimes it's just awkward to have to go in and uh, talk to somebody. First, you got to tell a nurse about it. And then you got to tell the doctor. There's usually like three people you have to tell about your thing that you're kind of embarrassed about maybe. And like they all, sometimes it's overheard. There's other people 
people around. It's so much easier with 4 No more awkward in-person doctor visits or long pharmacy lines. 4 connects you to real doctors online, which could save you hours, and it's completely confidential and discreet. You answer a few quick questions, a doctor will review it, and if they determine it's right for you, they can prescribe you medication to treat hair loss that is shipped directly to your door. Order now. Our listeners can get started with the Hims Complete Hair Kit for just $5 today, right now while supplies last and subject to a doctor's approval. See website for full details and safety information. This could cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy somewhere else. Go to 4 slash OA. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash OA. One more time, 4 slash OA. Go check it out right now. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. So you're not aware of any context during the course of the election? How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia is a ruse. I know you have to get up and ask a question, so important. Russia is a ruse. Well, I'm not a crook. Well, let's move on to mixed news. I don't know if this is... I'm curious what you think on on Mueller's statement. We finally got to hear him talk. He hadn't said anything for the whole investigation. Um, wow. What, what, uh, what say you, Andrew? I would say this is mixed with some cause for optimism. So uh, I want to go through and kind of highlight the, the key uh, lines that are in Mueller's statement. But I want to start with the end of the statement. Uh, because this is really the important part and, and puts us in a decision making space uh, that I don't know that I have the right answer at, at this point. So it's a it's a conversation that that I want us to have um, at the end of Mueller's statement in which uh, he makes he, he does not make himself available for questioning. Uh, Mueller says. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decision we made. We chose those words carefully and the work speaks for itself. The report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. Uh, In addition... Access to our underlying work product is being decided in a process that does not involve our office. We've, we've talked about that. Uh, so beyond what I've said here today and what is contained in our written work, I do not believe it is appropriate for me, meaning Robert Mueller, to speak further about the investigation or to comments on the action of the Justice Department or Congress. Um, that's not good. <laughs> um, yeah. That is Robert Mueller saying, uh, I will not voluntarily testify before Congress. I've got you've got my testimony. It's in the form of the report. Mm -hmm. Um, You and I have talked about that, that ideally what I would like to see is somebody on the House Judiciary Committee pose to Robert Mueller the question, uh, sir, if the target of your investigation were not the president of the United States, would you have recommended an indictment? Yeah. Right? That's and exactly the question yes. that I was thinking that, that we would want. And it seems like he would decline to answer. It, it seems he's, like he's that's, that's exactly right. And now, and now the question is if the Democrats subpoena Mueller, right? I did look, if they subpoena Mueller, he will testify, mm-hmm. right? It, this is, I, I, I believe that he's saying on this, look, like I'm not going to, you know, uh, 
defy a subpoena. I'm not going to be a recalcitrant witness. I will testify. But this is his way of saying, I'm not going to give you the answer that you're looking for. Yeah, but I think what maybe he doesn't realize is that there's so much power in him just saying things that are in the report. <laughs> I think he's, he's, it's funny because he's up there. He's like, all right, uh, you know, I, I don't want to testify because we, he, you guys don't need me to get up here and just read you what the report says. I mean, oh, wait, you yeah, do need, and, you and do we need do. Me. It is beyond <laughs> obvious that in fact we do. And uh, maybe um, Brian can do a clown horn in here so people know what clown horn is because somebody pointed out that nobody will know what it is. Nobody has read the f- report. Nobody. So, yes, we actually do need him to get up there and just even if he just wants to read it, that's fine, because apparently the American public and maybe a lot of Congress, A, didn't read it uh, or B, it just doesn't have the same power to read something like that versus hearing Bob Mueller say if we if the evidence, uh, you know, was that he didn't commit a crime, we would have said so. Like, that's the powerful quote that everybody is you know it's all over all over the news and everything and it's like we already knew that we already knew it but but i think you do need somebody to say it so i still think we should have him testify uh even if he just says stuff that's written down because it's just more powerful and 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 the risk is that he will testify in a way that is unhelpful or can easily be spun by bill barr and the presidential sycophants into undermining what's in the Mueller report right so it it it, i i could have made the argument that you just made all all i'm pointing out is that there is now a downside risk yeah and that is if Mueller believes uh, look i made this clear i don't want to testify and you made me come here anyway uh all right but like i'm not going to give you what you want um that that could make things worse so it is not it is not without a downside like i said i haven't come to a landing on it i i think that i am still uh probably pro subpoenaing him for the reasons that you've just said uh but but we have to be prepared for Mueller to testify you know as as effectively you know as as a as a hostile witness in the colloquial sense right like we we joke about this in law awful movies all the time treating a witness as hostile doesn't mean that they are hostile to your position it just means that you can ask leading questions on direct um but but i mean that in in the joke sense here right that that uh if he is perceived as the democrats witness but he's not giving you the answers that you want and he's not giving you the soundbite that you want um could that backfire could that create more cover for the totally misleading narrative that the Mueller report is an exoneration i i, I don't know but that's no, now that think, now has to be part of the discussion yeah, I guess. it's got to be part of the discussion so, i i think that i think there's plenty of value in getting him to say some of these things i think you can ask him if you weren't the president, would you have said, you know, et cetera, like you just said. And I believe that he will likely say, I'm not going to answer that because, and it sounds, it's a weird thing. It's like his view has been that to even um, uh, accuse, to even have said, while we can't indict the president because the guidance is you can't indict a sitting president. If he weren't president, we wouldn't indict him. His view, Mueller's view seems to be like, even that's unfair because then the president doesn't have a chance to like rebut that or something, which, what do you make of that? Because that's, because the president has the bully pulpit. He has the ultimate, you know, he can always rebut everything. That, 
that's true. Let's let's dig into that a little bit. So um, why not go ahead? I I think there are only like five or six sentences that are really crucial in in Mueller's uh, testimony. Um, so let's go through them chronologically, and then that's that's in the middle. So mm-hmm. um, the the first statement that. I think is really, really significant, um, and I'm going to include the transcript of uh, of what he said in the show notes, uh, is in paragraph three, Mueller says, the attorney general has made the report on our investigation largely public. Um, and there's, there's a, a subsequent reference later in the statements in which Mueller says, uh, essentially, I think the redactions here are fair. Mm, um, yeah. For example, he says, the attorney general uh, preferred to make the entire report public all at once. We appreciate that the attorney general made the report largely public. I do not question the attorney general's good faith in that decision. Um, So uh, that tells us, and again, um, you know, negative in the sense that, you know, when the unredacted report is made public, um, you know, maybe there aren't quite as many bombshells as you and I thought. Uh, might be might be buried within that. Um, it, it certainly tells us what Mueller thinks of it, right? Don't that, don't that, give me the you and I. I was pessimistic on this. I feel like. Oh, okay. Well, that I thought definitely. Remember when we argued like, in, oh, in, there could be a bombshell. Yeah. Well. well yeah. Okay. In Appendix C, where they the 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 paragraph that's blocked out in between the president gave us evasive answers. Mm-hmm blocked out paragraph in order to avoid a protracted court battle we decided not to subpoena the president Mm -hmm. um i it i can't wait to read that paragraph right so i i I don't think that that the number of bombshells are zero uh but i think that if if you were thinking that the unredacted report was maybe redacted in a way that was you know nothing could be as misleading as Barr's letter (laughs) but if you thought that it was potentially misleading because of the redactions, here is Robert Mueller saying, kind of tipping his his hand, going, "Yeah, don't 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 think that it's not it is not in the main misleadingly redacted." Again, I don't think that means that there aren't misleading redactions and that there aren't over redactions in it, uh, but that is not. There's no smocking gun hidden in the redactions that um, yeah uh, that are going to come out. Next up is the the issue that you were talking about, and and here is uh, the way in which uh, Mueller describes it. He says, as a result of the indictments uh, to the Russian efforts to interfere with our election, we investigated efforts to obstruct the investigation. The matters we investigated were of paramount importance. It was critical for us to obtain full and accurate information from every person we questioned. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, and let's be clear here, this means the president of the United States, it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. Um, that is not being quoted at the same level as the if we had confidence that the president mm-hmm. clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Um, but that is, ju- in my view, almost as as damning. Right. This is saying, hey, the reason we wrote that entire volume two and volume two only concerns the 
10 separate activities undertaken by the president of the United States is because this is very, very serious in an investigation of paramount importance. It obstructed that investigation. It prevented us from getting at the truth. Um, that's really, really bad. Yeah. Um, well, that's another question yeah. I would like to ask him is how can you maybe try to get at the distinction between not enough evidence to support a criminal conspiracy and how much of that could have been due to obstruction, you know, like maybe get him to say out loud uh, or comment on, but for the obstruction, might there have been more evidence of a criminal conspiracy? I don't know what he would say. Um, and I don't know. Do you think that could backfire or something? No, no, I I, I think that's exactly the that that's exactly the predicate of the question that that this sentence is is to, to which this sentence is meant to respond right when it says that when a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation it strikes at the core of the government's effort to find the truth right so i i i think it would be fair to say to to ask him uh, uh, uh mr Mueller, is you know you've said and then read back that part of the record are you saying yeah. that your investigation was unable to completely ascertain the truth in right. this matter? Right. Right. And his answer to that will be then to quote from the report, right? Will be yes. Right. Like it, 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 yeah. He but says I, so yeah, exactly. Very, very clearly. And yeah. it's, uh, I think this is totally right. Now, now I'm even pushed further to that. We need him to testify because what Mueller has done through the report and through this prepared statement is he's found a way. I don't, I don't. I'm not 100% sure why some combination of, you know, dedication to norms or something, plus also residual Republican loyalty. I don't know. But he's found a way to say pretty bombshelly things in the most boring way possible. Like if you designed, <laughs> if you were sitting there trying to design a lecture, like you're a professor or something, and you're like, how can I get people the least interested in what I'm saying and to make my words have the least impact. Here we go. But it's, but still be factually like accurate, you know, like still. And the benefit of getting him to testify might be, you know, Kamala Harris or somebody uh, being able to like put things in better terms, like more, uh, I don't know, headline grabbing terms, more uh, terms that, that are, are just attention grabbing that make you feel the the weight of what actually happened and getting him to say yes or no. You know, I, I think he might do that. And I think that would be important. I, I as as we're having this discussion, I think that's a really, really good point. And I think if it were characterized as, yeah, you've said you're going to testify from your report. We expect you to do that. But what we want to do is distill a 400 plus page report for yeah. Members of Congress that haven't and won't read it and for the American public that haven't and won't read it. And, you know, you've been a lawyer long enough to know a lawyer could knock out 400 pages. We do that sort of stuff all the time. But the average person isn't going to do that unless there's, you know, unless it's the star report and, you know, there's salacious sexual details on the next page. Um, and and that may be a that may be a a an approach that. Satisfies Mueller's caveat there right it, it i don't know right it, it at this point that is just rank speculation as to is you know is he done is he you know all i can go by is what he said publicly but 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 i but i agree with that to, that if you can say hey look 
yeah, we get it. Testify from the report, but we want to frame the discussion of the report because there's so much out there. Uh, I think that I think that would be a good uh, a good policy. Now, the remaining parts of interest are from the middle section of Mueller's testimony describing the 2000 OLC memorandum. We've talked about that. Uh, at some length on this show, let's talk about what Mueller has said and what the OLC memorandum actually says. Uh, So Mueller says, it explains that under longstanding department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. Yeah, Yeah, that, that caught my attention. It's interesting. Yeah. That, in my view, overstates the 2000 OLC memo. Um, And again, let's talk about what the 2000 OLC memo, right? So the 2000 OLC memo is uh, Bill Clinton's Office of Legal Counsel at a time in which Bill Clinton was impeached and could plausibly have been charged with crimes, uh, updating a 1973 Solicitor General Robert Bork memo, uh, arguing that, of course, Nixon uh, could not be charged with any crimes uh, while while in office. Um, It is analyzing Article One, Section Three, Clause Seven of the Constitution, and I and I want to just sort of bracket this for a minute. That clause, that's the impeachment clause for the president, right? And it says, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Um, and so. In analyzing that particular constitutional provision, I, I want to point out because I've gotten a number of questions from email of uh, if uh, if Trump is impeached but not convicted, are there double jeopardy implications to that? And that clause says no, no, there are not. Right? It says you can uh, you you try for impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, you can remove them from office and then try him again for right subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Right? Because as we've pointed out, high crimes and misdemeanors are not the same as federal crimes. So I, I I thought that that kind of bracket was important. The 2000 OLC memo basically says okay. The last word on this subject was from 1973. Robert Bork says you can't indict the president, meaning Richard Nixon. But since then, we've had a bunch of Supreme Court decisions. A bunch of them were about Richard Nixon. Uh, But probably the most relevant and crucial one that we've talked about on the show a bunch of times was Clinton versus Jones, right? In which the Supreme Court said, hey, look, uh, the president does indeed have to respond to civil lawsuits while in office, right? Because remember, Bill Clinton took the position that uh, executive immunity meant he could not be required to respond to Paula Jones' civil lawsuit alleging sexual harassment while he was the president. And again, his position was, hey, look, like, toll it and sue me when I'm out of office, but uh, I'm the president. You can't... You can't uh, you can't require me to respond to a civil lawsuit while I'm being the president. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, we can, actually. The interests of justice uh, and the fact that this would only somewhat obstruct you from doing your job are re- actually 
require that 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 you uh, respond to to those civil lawsuits. Um, and so then the question was, does that bear? Does the fact that that decision from 1998 does that bear in any way on the earlier 1973 decision with respect to indicting a sitting president? Um, and the OLC said, and and again, I think they're right on this first part. No. Uh, it, it does not change the idea of sending in U.S. marshals and dragging the president out in handcuffs, right? Because he's the president, right? And separation of powers means that we can't have the judiciary uh, authorize the removal of uh, the head of the executive branch. Um, the counter argument, and again, really, really good counter argument, we've talked about this on the show before, is. Aaron Burr was vice president and he was tried for murder. Right. <laughs> and and, you know, if you want to say, OK, the vice president's not the president. And certainly, you know, in the 18th century, the vice president, uh, uh, you can make those arguments. But but you do have to grapple with we tried a vice president. So, you know, that that the separation of powers argument doesn't seem to be, you know, if there is an argument only for protecting the president, it certainly is not one that can be found in the text or the original intent of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. You have to go by, you know, some kind of crazy liberal evolving constitutional standards to, to come up with that. But I do have crazy liberal evolving constitutional standards. Um, so, so I think I agree that a sitting president cannot be indicted, right? But then there's the second half of the question, right? Which is, what about a, and, and I mean indicted and, and hauled off in handcuffs, right? What about a sealed indictment that is stayed while the president is in office, and you do that so that the statute of limitations does not run on right. the crimes that the president has alleged to have committed. But at the same time, right, you leave it up to the political process of impeachment to say, OK, well, you know, we, we a grand jury thinks that the president has committed a crime. Uh, we're going to seal that indictment. It will not be made public. Uh, and uh, you you want this uh, alleged criminal to, to serve out their term. OK, like we're not going to stop you. That's what the Constitution allows. Uh, but uh, but you might want to know that. Right. Um, and 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 critically, I mean, the, the reason that I think that that is the best course of action is actually from the arguments, the separation of powers arguments in the 2000 OLC memo. Right. This is page 257. It says uh, immunity from indictment and criminal prosecution for a sitting president would, quote, generally result in the delay, but not the forbearance of any criminal trial. End of quote. Um that's true for Aaron Burr, right, who was charged with murder because murder does not have a statute of limitations. It's not true for Donald Trump. It is it is not true for any crime that carries with it a statute of limitations. The only way to preserve that uh, is to allow for the indictment while he's president and then uh, unseal that indictment, you know, toll it. Uh, until he is no longer in office, whether removed by impeachment or otherwise, uh, and then uh, and then allow the uh, justice system to proceed once he's out of office. Um, on that section, this lengthy 35-page OLC memorandum gives us only two paragraphs. And basically it says, we've separately considered... Whether this constitutional immunity extended only to criminal prosecution and confinement, but not indictment, 
The president's ability to perform his constitutional functions would be unduly burdened by the mere pendency of an indictment against which he would need to defend himself after leaving office. We continue to believe that the better view of the Constitution accords a sitting president immunity from indictment by itself. To some degree, indictment alone will spur the president to devote energy and attention to mounting his legal defense. The stigma and opprobrium attached to indictment exceed those faced by the civil litigant defending a claim. Given the modern realities of politics and the mass media and the delicacy of the political relationships which surround the presidency, both foreign and domestic, there would be a... This is unfortunate. Russian roulette aspect <laughs> to the course of indicting the president, post- postponing trial, hoping in the meantime that the power to govern could survive. Um, you will note there are no case citations in there. There's no historical citations. There's no hornbook. There's no. Right, there's nothing. That's just a paragraph at the end in which a Clinton OLC official said, and eh, by the way, probably also not this too. Um, it is not well reasoned. Uh, it contains no citations, and it contradicts the earlier statements that that the reason to shield the president from criminal immunity is to postpone rather than eliminate potential future criminal liability. Um, now, Robert Mueller is bound by the OLC opinion, right? Because that is binding on the Justice Department. Uh, Congress is not; the judiciary is not, and so um, that that. That characterization is a characterization of what of how Mueller interpreted those OLC guidelines, uh, but it is not an accurate statement of the law. All right. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that's that explains it well. All right. Well, that states it well, Andrew. Uh, yeah, I, I had been very curious about that quote because I had thought that we had talked previously on the show that you could seal an indictment and let it sit around. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really think... Uh, Again, Mueller is not Ken Starr, and that's good in most ways. But also, it's I've I've said it a number of times, but you can't. It's not apples to apples to compare, you know, these special counsels and 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 to uh, even unconsciously in your mind be like, well, the Clinton. I remember the Clinton uh, report being so much uh, worse than this one, and therefore Trump must not be as guilty or that kind of thing. I just don't think that's it. I think Mueller is really, really trying to. I don't know, be fair, I guess, uh, or, or maybe, you know, he is a Republican. Maybe he's just giving too much benefit of the doubt or, or too much, uh, doing, doing too much to, uh, favor Trump in maybe unconscious ways. I don't know. Either way, uh, we're out of time. So we've got well, to, and, and, yeah, and go let me, I only say, let me say eight seconds on that. Um, mm-hmm, usually sure. I'm on the side of, you know, preserving institutional independence and urging caution. Right now, we're in a position where Donald Trump has politicized the attorney general's office and he has a personal advocate spinning this as his attorney general. And yeah, I sure do wish that instead of it being Robert Mueller, it was the Democratic equivalent mm-hmm. of, of Ken Starr, that that it was an advocate out to get Trump uh, to to counter the fact that Trump has a sycophantic defender lying about the, the contents of the Mueller report in office. So I agree. All right. Well, it is time to thank our top patrons over at patreon.com slash law. Andrew, why don't you start us off? And thank you to Savsit Pro Tip Hand, the judge a reverse card to send the prosecution to jail. Nice uh, <laughs> Uno reference there. To Dragonfly.eco, books about nature and the environment, reviews and interviews. Oh, check that out. Stuff and polls. 
Betsy DeVos is the Antichrist, <laughs> John Richards, Darth Mandy Pants, well-deserved patron number 239, uh, Beast Wars sucks, Beasties forever. Um, that That is totally misguided. The, the Beast Wars, when it was distributed in Canada, had to be uh, distributed under the name Beasties because the Canadian broadcast would not let them put wars in, in the name. <laughs> so it's the same show, people. Come on. What did they do I'm for unbrewing. Star Wars? Starries? Stories, I guess. I know. Well, because it was a kid show. Oh, I see. Uh, Amanum Brewing, Adam Costa, 13th century Saxony gravel truck lawyer, Bookum Dano, Jay Aldenwalt, Jennifer Cratch, Barbara Lawall is queen of us all, queen of us all, queen of us all. All right. The cure for ultravirus. We are going to build a Death Star and make Alderaan pay for it. GCU Moss Gatherer. Malcolm the dragon aims to misbehave. Whatever whatever consenting dragons do amongst themselves. (laughs) Stephen Balticatai Sandoval. Impeach Bill Barr. Impeach Bill Barr. That is a patron name and a suggestion. Incorporating my uterus as a church to avoid anti-choice laws and taxes. (laughs) Milkshake America Great Again. Detective Pikachu investigating obstruction for you. Post-apocalypse candle lighting insurance provider. John Bilderback. Hi, I'm Deckard Kane. You may remember me from such games as Diablo. <laughs> oh, man, I really wish you were doing that because you could uh, do, I think, the uh, Troy McClure voice there. But, uh, I will not attempt it. Uh, CivilPoliticsRadio.com, Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern on Valley Free Radio, the Registry Matters podcast. Take the June primary poll at ClownhornVoting.com. Yeah, do that. Incorrectly pronouncing Latin to avoid the accidental summoning of demons. Yes, honey buns. The Take It EV podcast, Sustainable Transportation for All. Oh, I like that. Datahack.com, business automation, making the menial automatic. HOTUS and the Taint Team 2020, Eric Alsman. Thomas Smith is my favorite attorney. Andrew is a close second. That's a reasonable opinion. Michael C. Sampson, Payne Strumpet. <laughs> Bring the Atmospherium to Lattice and Crow Bar. <laughs> Kiwa Valley Exports for Australian Red Meat and Craft Beer. Michael Cohen is a no-talent ass clown. Let me be totally clear. I like being totally clear. The Getting Off Podcast, Chris Rowden. Milo Mead's song, The Halfling Bard, and Frantic Bar Prepper. Yeah, lots of people are bar prepping right now, so hopefully Mm. we're we're helping you out here. Cosmo, I am not redacted. You're the one who's redacted, Blues. (laughs) Sam Buck, redaction blackout should now be called Bill Bars. Join your labor union. Together we bargain alone, we beg. Peppers are pickled post-picking what was in Peter Piper's peck (laughs) and adopt a homeless 61 Corvair and let it quietly rust away into your lawn. (laughs) That is fantastic Ralph Nader deep cuts there. Uh, Take it away, Thomas, for our second half. If I had a dollar every time I changed my name, I'd have a dollar. Cool. James, Andrew's epitaph will move my noodle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a very stable genius with many accomplish accomplishments okay all branches are co-equal but some are mo- more co-equal than others oh that's brilliant that's good. Devin Nunez as the arch nemesis of the taint team is canon now right anonymous buttercups legal services thanks thinks patreon should allow per subscription names and longer n- I don't know uh, incoming transmission from Junior Missions Operation Manager Nerma Bundeloy. How many licks to the center of a Tootsie Pop? One, two, redacted. <laughs> An anagram of Benoktarsky is Benoktarsky, Benoktarsky. That's, told that's that is such a great math joke. joke. I yeah. love that. <laughs> Canon starring William Conrad Michaels. 
Wordorigins.org, your source for legal terms from 13th century Saxony. Effing robots at the Portland Maine Fringe Festival. We need to talk about Bill Barr's Sharpie huffing addiction. Derek, Rodney, Pete Moss, heart to heart beat around the bush quail hunting lodge. <laughs> I either had an aneurysm just now or I read that perfectly or both. Is calling it soccer on ice meant to insult soccer or hockey? Um, yeah, no, that's an insult to hockey. <laughs> yeah, because yes, soccer that's an sucks. insult to both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alexa, play impeach the president by the honey drippers. Franzia de Box is cheap and good in red. Big Easy Blasphemy. An anagram of unpronounceable characters is also unpronounceable. Brandon Smith. Using my birth certificate to cover my Patreon costs. Spoiler Deleted is my favorite Dead Avenger. Spoiler Deleted is a close second. Rhonda's Hovercraft is full of eels. <laughs> okay. Move your local noodle and oppose transforming and moss growing. <laughs> nice. Malega Chandler, Abacus Flinch, volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org. Soggy Pants, Sam Denau, Greg Sullivan, Thomas Explains the Patreon Names is my new favorite segment. Glug's Nerd Glug, first squid on the moon, year 2,973,000, oh no, 2,973,000,412. Thank you for making me say all that. Zabby, Matthew Vernon, adopt a homeless pet and oppose declawing and ear docking. Aaron Grady, Heather L., Jeremiah's Fancy Microwave Emporium, Sakashite Fukasumi, Is It a Crime to Offer Money to Milkshake a President? Hmm, I don't know. Is it? We'll see. Ian and Ali. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Yes. so let's be totally okay. clear. Yes. Right, yes, it fine. is. <laughs> Impolite, arrogant women make history. Nice. Neil Gorsuch is a clown horning monster. Eli Bosnick, Mitchell. Aaron is pro-cloning so he can cannibalize himself. President Trump is my new favorite typo. Thanks, Newto. Oh, President Trumpo. Yeah, that was in a, uh, Newt Gingrich. <laughs> These people and their Twitter typos. It's, I mean, especially uh, especially the the Giuliani. It's just a wow. Did you see that one the other? Was it last week where it's just like I, you know, his his Twitter Giuliani's Twitter is pretty much a medical alert bracelet. Like it really. <laughs> It's just like, all right, call the hospital again. I don't know what's happening. An anagram of Lindsey Graham is angrily shamed. And finally, champion for the ages. No one has yet unseated him, but keep trying. Conrad Michaels, the great Conrad Michaels. All right. Thank you, top patrons. You're the best. And now it's time for TTTBE. It sure is. And Thomas, uh, we have a criminal law question. So thank you. are doing pretty good. All right. Yeah. Finally. Oh, no associate of this firm has ever failed the bar exam. No kidding. All right. A woman drove her car through the drive through lane mm-hmm. of a fast food mm-hmm. restaurant one afternoon. My it's a, it's a criminal yeah, McDonald's <laughs> question. Come on. <laughs> this is if you don't get yeah. this right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. When she reached the microphone used to place mm-hmm. orders, mm-hmm. she said, there's a man across the street with a rifle. He can see everything you do. If you do not do exactly what I tell you, he will shoot you. Now give Put me all a hundred Crunchwrap Supremes. <laughs> <laughs> Put all the money from the register into a sack and give it to me when I drive up. I I I love this crime. I just yeah. want to say I, I love this crime. I love the this clerk. crime. Quote, quote the Andrew, I love this crime. Use that, Brian. The clerk did not see anyone across the street and was unsure whether anyone was there. However, 
unwilling to risk, risk harm to himself, he put $500 in a paper bag and handed it to the woman when she drove up to the delivery window. What I really want to know is, were there like three cars in front of her? Like, you know, she, is yeah. she waiting? They were oh, still okay, having to right. do the food for a while. Yeah. Like, all right, yeah. here's your order. Here's your... All right, the double cheeseburger in this one. That, right. No. All right. The woman then drove off with the money, but was arrested a short time later because she's an idiot. She had lied about there having been a man with a rifle and had acted alone. Oh, so this is it's also kind of a Pulp Fiction-y question, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, what if um, no one no one ever robs restaurants? And uh, could you remember the, the, the bit where he was, you know, he, he robbed it with a uh, microphone? Anyway, uh, with a uh, walkie-talkie. Anyway, so she lied, no man with a rifle, and had acted alone. Of what crimes can the woman be convicted? First off, I feel like they robbed that restaurant in Pulp Fiction with guns. They had guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they okay. first talking at the at the beginning of Pulp ah, Fiction. Right. Right. Uh, uh, Honey Bunny right. is talking about. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So this woman, of what crime or crimes can she be convicted? A, embezzlement. B, obtaining property by false pretenses. C, robbery and larceny. Or D, robbery or larceny. Uh, this is wow. This feels hard. Um, uh, oh, embezzlement. No, okay, that's an easy elimination. Obtaining property by false pretenses. I feel like. I mean that. That probably is not it. Like I feel like that would be like. You drive. You go someplace. And you're like, oh my! I'm p- just picking up this uh, thing for my friend. You know, like obtaining property. I feel like you don't hear about that as a charge. In it's just robbery. Because so C and D seem like to me the the tough one, the ones you want. Robbery and larceny, or D robbery or larceny. Oh man! So it seems like if I'm analyzing this right. This hinges on the precise technical def- differences between robbery and larceny, and I have no idea what those differences are. Uh, I, d- <laughs> I don't really know entirely what larceny is. I feel like you hear about robbery and larceny. It's not like assault and battery where they're always together, is it? Or is it like either robbery or or larceny? Larceny. All right, this seems really hard to me. I am going to go with C, robbery and larceny. I feel like it's not going to be D where it's either robbery or larceny because I I I don't I, I just don't feel like that's going to be the fact pattern. I feel like I feel like if the fact pattern was one of robbery or larceny then it doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Ah, whatever. I could be wrong, but I'm going to go ahead and say they can go together and therefore it's C. It's between C and D. I think B is not quite right, even though it sounds the most right. If B is just the obvious right answer, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a little miffed, but, uh, but I'm going with C. All right. And if you'd like to play along with Thomas, you know how to do that. Just share out this episode on social media. Include the hashtag TTTBE. Include your answer, your reasons, therefore, and we will pick a winner and shower that person with never-ending fame and fortune. Fame and fortune, not guaranteed. All right. Thanks so much for listening and tune in on Tuesday for an amazing deep dive. Can't wait. See you then. You betray the law! Law! 
This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Thomas. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it'd be a big help if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. Until next time. Podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media LLC. All rights reserved. Opening Arguments is produced with the assistance of our editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, our production assistant, Ashley Smith, and our researcher, Deborah Smith. Special thanks to Teresa Gomez and the entire OA Wiki team. Follow them at, at OA Wiki. And a big thank you to our Facebook group moderators, Alicia Cook, Natalie Newell, Emily Waters, Eric Brewer, and Brian. Check out the Opening Arguments Facebook community. And finally, thanks to Thomas Smith for creating the show's theme song, which is used with permission. Gee, Zachary True Williger, what a clown horn of a week. I love this crap. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.